Hey, we're continuing in our series on the life of Abram. Abram's name gets changed to Abraham, and he becomes the father of the Hebrew nation or the Jewish people. And in a real way, because of his faith in stepping out in obedience to God, God called to Abram. He said, come and follow me. I want you to leave your native country and go to a land I'll show you. And because of Abraham's obedience to God, it's part of the reason we're sitting here today at Mitchell Brian worshiping uh, the same God. Because of Abram's faith, because the Messiah, Jesus, came through uh, the people of Israel, the nation of Israel. And so uh, Abram is the father of that nation and we're uh, the beneficiaries of his faith. You know, when you step out in faith to follow God, there's no telling. You really can't measure the impact that's going to have on your life and the people around you, but also the generations that follow you that will be influenced by your faith. And so as we study the life of Abram, we look at Genesis uh, and started, we started in chapter 11 and this week we're going to be at the, the, the last bit of chapter 14 and then chapter 15, if you want to turn there in your Bible. But we're seeing uh, Abram learn to walk by faith. Uh, it didn't come naturally to him. <laughs> it wasn't like uh, he just got it right off the bat and uh, he was a natural at living at faith and did everything perfectly. Uh, in fact, he did not and we're seeing that. And, of course, it's the same for us. Um, Unless you're, you know, a a faith phenom, like it's difficult for most of us to learn to walk by faith. We have some challenges and struggles at that, and we've got to learn. And so uh, in looking at the life of Abram, uh, I'm I'm prayerful and hopeful that you can see your life uh, in his, and you can see a a connection there, and the, the lessons that he learns and the way that God works with him you're going to be able to relate to how God works in your life and maybe understand a little bit better how God's at work in your life. And so, um, and so that's where we're at. We've been looking at, uh, at different aspects of, this, um, of Abram's life this week. We're going to focus in on following God into promise. Following God into promise. When you step out to follow God, when you step out to live a life of faith, you're going to have to learn to trust the promises of God. It's not going to come natural to you to trust the promises of God. What you're going to want to do is trust your own instincts, your own nature, your own thoughts, your own wisdom. That's what you're going to want to do. That makes sense in the world we live in, right? And yet God calls us to a life of faith, which is altogether different. To trust and believe his promises means to believe things that are altogether different from the world that we live in. And so there's a challenge to that. It's difficult, and we see Abram struggle a bit at learning to walk by faith. And you will experience that too, and probably already have, if you've attempted it. Because one of the biggest challenges to a life of faith is that we have an enemy. The Bible calls him Satan, Lucifer, the devil. He is against uh, God, and he's in opposition to those that would live in faith uh, towards God. And so he seeks to cast doubt into our minds, into our hearts, into the world we live in. A doubt about God. Doubt about what God says. Is it really true? Does God really know what he's talking about? And so we see this all the way in the beginning, in the book of Genesis, in the very beginning with Adam and Eve. As they set out, uh, uh, living in a perfect garden, in paradise, and uh, God gave them instructions. They had uh, complete freedom to do nearly anything they wanted to do. One restriction, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you do, you'll die. And what did the devil do? He came and said, is that really true? Did God really know what he was talking about? I don't think it's true. 
And so Adam and Eve uh, decided to go ahead and um, act in disobedience to what God said. They, that doubt was cast. Turns out that it's not that hard to cast doubt. I get frustrated a lot of times. You can spend a, a, a lot of years building faith up in your children. I raised three children. And one person can come in and cast doubt on all that work. <laughs> and, it's, and it seems easy. And they seem really pulled towards that. Like to question everything that you ever taught them, right? And so this is the nature of doubt. It's, it's a powerful force. It's not that difficult. Um, <clears throat> Lord Halifax, who was a former, for, former uh, foreign secretary in Great, uh, in Great Britain, once shared a railway card. He was traveling by train. He shared a railway, a railway card with a couple of spinster, uh, prim and proper women. Um, he sat in the same uh, um, uh, section of the car with them, right? It's the way they used to travel by train. And so near the end of the journey, they went through a tunnel. Everything got dark. Well, Lord Halifax uh, kissed the back of his hand very loudly, making some loud kissing sounds, smacking sounds. And then they came out of the tunnel, pulled into the station. He got up and he said, ladies, I just want to thank whichever one of you is responsible for that wonderful encounter in the tunnel. And then he left quickly, leaving the two ladies glaring at each other in disgust. It's not hard to cast doubt. It's not hard. Turns out it's pretty easy. And so um, we got to be careful of this. We got to learn to battle doubt. And the way we battle doubt is by faith. In our story today, the text that we're looking at from the scriptures, we're going to see how God confirms his promises to Abram. He confirms them in a powerful way. It's very interesting to me to see how God confirms to Abram and by translation to you and to me the promises that he makes to us. Because God does indeed confirm those promises. When he makes a promise, we can count on the fact that he will keep it. And yet it is difficult. You're going to doubt it at times. After Abram's victory over Kedorlaomer, we looked at last week this, uh, this epic battle in the region of Canaan where Abram was. Uh, these powerful king, Kedorlaomer, he came down um, because of the rebellion of a couple other kings, the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah and some others. He came down to squash this rebellion. He swept the area, conquering everybody. Uh, and then he certainly um, also defeated Sodom, the king of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he took with him the spoils of war. He ransacked all of their cities and took all the wealth with him. And along the way, he also captured Lot, who was Abram's nephew, and he grabbed Lot and all of his possessions, and he headed back. Well, Abram heard about it, and he came to the rescue, and God empowered him and enabled him to conquer Kedorlaomer. And so Abram now comes back with everything that Kedorlaomer had, had stolen. So he's headed back to Canaan, back to the, the region, and, um, and he has all these spoils from the city of Sodom along with Lot and all his family. And on his way back home, something important takes place. Following his victory, Abram gets blessed. If you're in Genesis 14, follow along as I read, starting verse 17. After Abram returned from his victory over Kedorlaomer and all his allies, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem and a priest of God Most High, brought Abram some bread and wine. Melchizedek blessed Abram with this blessing. Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has defeated your enemies for you. Then Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all the goods he had recovered. 
The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me back my people who were captured, but you may keep for yourself all the goods you have recovered. Abram replied to the king of Sodom, I solemnly swear to the Lord God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, that I will not take so much as a single thread or sandal thong from what belongs to you. Otherwise, you might say, I am the one who made Abram rich. I will accept only what my young warriors have already eaten, and I, will re- and I request that you give a fair share of the goods to my allies, Anur, Eshkol, and Mamre. So Abram is met after this great victory by two kings, king of Sodom, who uh, by accounts that we know previously is a wicked king, does not follow God, does not believe in God. And he's also met by this character uh, called Melchizedek, who is a king, the king of Salem. Salem can be translated Jerusalem, which is a whole other uh, conversation as to, uh, as to where uh, Melchizedek was king. But he was the king of Salem, and he was a priest of God Most High. So we talked about how uh, the, the world, by and large, had left the knowledge of God and the worship of God. They had gone to worshiping um, created things. They were polytheistic, meaning worshiping many gods. And so even Abram's father, Terah, worshipped probably the sun, the moon, the stars, created things, rather than worshipping the God who created. And so here we see a character in Melchizedek, an individual who is still true and loyal to the true God. And he worships God. And so Abram comes back, and this interaction with Melchizedek, Melchizedek comes out um, as a king and a priest, and he blesses Abram, and he prays a blessing over him with the understanding that Abram is also blessed by God, the same God that he worships. And because he's a priest, we see something really fascinating happen. Abram gives a tenth or a tithe of all that he's won in battle to Melchizedek. And with this, we discover that this idea of giving or managing our finances or the things that God blesses us with by uh, giving back a portion of it to God. This uh, word tithe means literally 10%. And it's taught all the way through the Bible. Um, And this is one of the first places we see it appear. This idea of giving to God in worship a tithe or a tenth. And uh, and it's kind of fascinating because a lot of people think that the tithe was started under the law of Moses. And it's taught there, obviously. And that it... um, maybe is in effect in the New Testament. And yet really what we see, the truth is, that we see it begin here, a tenth in terms of giving, in in worship to God. And then we see it certainly show up again in the law of Moses and follow throughout that, that that was the command. And then we also see Jesus affirm the tithe or giving a 10%. And so the truth is that if we're to look to Scripture and really want to know what God uh, what God asks of us, what, what God's teaching is on our finances and giving, that, that 10% really is something that holds true throughout the entire Bible. And it's interesting to me when God requires things of us, his people, um, there's a reason for it. You know, God says uh, in, the, in the Old Testament that he's a jealous God. Ten commandments, don't, don't have, have no other gods before me. And it's like, why, God, are you, why are you jealous? Are you, do you get upset when, when we go worship something else? And, you know, we think that way because that's the way we think as humans. But the truth is, the reason God says that is for our benefit. <laughs> because we are the ones who will look astray. We will go astray. We'll begin to worship other things. And that's detrimental and damaging to us. Because we're meant to reflect God most high, creator of heaven and earth. When we worship other things, we begin to follow those things. Our life begins to look like those things, and, and we go askew, we go astray. 
And so God says, keep your focus on me, worship me, because you're going to worship something with your life. Make sure you're worshiping me, because then you're going to become more like me, which is to become better, right? It's to become more like Jesus. And so when it comes to finances, a similar uh, principle is true. God doesn't um, ask us to give 10% because he needs it. He he doesn't need uh, our money. He doesn't need your money. God has everything available to him. The reason that he asks us, and this principle of tithing is uh, implemented in Scripture, is for our benefit. Because we have, again, a tendency to get attached to things. We have a tendency for our hearts to get attached to stuff or to our money. And so God says, listen, by tithing, you're going to practice something that will keep your finances in proper perspective. They're going to keep you in the right place, right? Uh, They'll keep them in the right place because of our tendency to get attached. And so this tithe principle is really important. And it really, I would encourage you that um, it really is biblical. It's the biblical model. And we know that um, probably what we should do, because you've probably heard this before, unless you're new uh, to faith or you're still wrestling with some of these teachings, you might have heard something different. But but we know probably if we're a, a Christian, a good Christian person, and we're following Jesus, that we should give 10% to God. We should probably save 10%, right? And then we should live on 80%. That's what we should do. <laughs> but... There's a lot of things we should do that we don't do, right? And so the truth is, in America, we've kind of built this habit of living on 120% of our income, right? Instead of living on 80%. So we've kind of gone 20% the wrong direction. And so really, the tithe does another thing for us. It teaches us to be disciplined, to know what kind of income we have, and to be aware of that, and then to give pre-planned, right, intentionally, um, I can uh, get to church and I go, oh man, I should give. I see the boxes in the back. I should give something. I pull up my wallet, see what I have in there, and I put it in the box. Now, that's great. It's a great start. I kind of call that tipping God. You know, hey God, here's a tip. Thank you. Appreciate it. You know, that's good. It's a good start. It's better than just passing by the boxes and not thinking about it at all. But what's better, the growth step, is to say, God, you've given me everything I have. It all comes from you. I want to be a good steward of that. I'm going to plan ahead. I'm going to calculate and I'm going to come ready to give intentionally. And that represents growth in our lives. We all need that, right? I'm just going to tell you, tithing isn't just for the benefit of the recipients of the tithe. Whether it's Mitchell Brian, whether it's another ministry, whether it's missionaries, wherever you give, yes, they benefit from your obedience and your stewardship, but it really benefits you as well. It, it grows your life. It strengthens you. And somehow the truth is that God blesses us when we tithe. And somehow that shortfall in money, which can be a lot, 10%'s not small. And we think we can think, how could I live on? How can I do that? It can be scary to even try. But the truth is, somehow, there's in the mystery of God, in the grace of God, that that 10% less becomes more as we live our lives. There's a pastor down in Texas years ago, um, and there's a wealthy businessman interacting with him. And this wealthy businessman has started a number of businesses. He's very successful, very wealthy. He's talking to the pastor, and he said, Pastor, do you believe in tithing, the principle of tithing? And the pastor said, yes, I do believe in it. And the wealthy businessman, well, do you practice it, pastor? The pastor said, I don't practice it. And he said, well, what, what, what's the problem? He said, well, I have 13 children. When we sit down to eat, there's 15 mouths to feed, right? And he goes, I make $125 a month, about uh, $1,500 a year. 
and this was years ago, but he goes, I just don't know how to feed all the mouths around my table, and I've got to keep my horse and buggy up and working so that I can go visit people and travel as is part of my job. He said, I just don't know how to do it. At the end of the month, uh, there's never any money left over to tithe with. It just seems impossible. And the wealthy businessman said, listen, I understand. Here's what I want to, I want to ask you to do. I want you to start off each month with the intention of giving $12.50 to God right as soon as you get your check. And he said, you, you do that. And as you do that, you go throughout the year, you keep track of things. And if you come to the point where you're short, where you just don't have enough to feed your family, take care of your bills, whatever it is, he said, you just write me a letter and I will make that up. I'll pay it right back to you. You just tell me, uh, you know, <clears throat> Here's what I'm short. Here's what I've been doing. This is how much I've given for the year, and I just can't do it. And he goes, I'll, I'll, I'll cover it. He goes, given that, uh, that criteria, would you try to tithe? And the pastor said, yeah, sure. And so he set off to begin to tithe. And so each month, $12.50 came off right off the top, and he gave it uh, in, the, in the offering plate. And you know what's interesting is he saw God begin to meet his needs financially throughout the year in different ways in weird ways that, that hadn't happened before. And he kind of got to the end of the year and he was coming up on the end of the year and he never had to ask the businessmen for help. And he was kind of amazed. But then he had a thought. He said, you know, I'm a pastor. I preach the, the gospel. I preach these principles. And he goes, the truth is in this situation, I trusted in this businessman uh, to cover any shortfall, what I needed. I trusted his promise, but I didn't trust the promise of God. He goes, that's not good. I should have more so trusted the promise of God than the promise of a human being, right? And so he said, really, the truth is that I've discovered over this last year that living on a little bit less but experiencing the blessings of God was much better than living on the full amount of my paycheck but not living under the blessing of God and the provision of God. Listen, I, the Bible doesn't make any promises to us that if we tithe, uh, you're, you know, God's going to give you all that money back or you're going to be wealthy. That's not the point. It is sacrificial. We're called to give sacrificially. But the truth is that God does promise to meet our needs. And I want to challenge you, if you would take this challenge up, um, <clears throat> because I am willing to trust God, if you fall short, Okay, if you start tithing, try it one month, try it two months. If it doesn't work, you just contact me and I'll make it right, okay? I don't know how I'm going to do that right now, but I will. Because I know that God is faithful, that he does keep his promises. And I know that in being obedient to him, that's how we receive the blessings he wants to give us. Chair two, uh, you know, we're talking about discipleship this year. It's our focus. We've got the first chair, um, which is uh, to seek and to kind of look for who God is, who is Jesus, uh, to look into his claims. And the second chair is when I become a follower. I put my trust in Jesus, right? And, uh, and I confess that I believe Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, that his death on the cross covered my sins, and I put my trust in him. Um, that chair two is really where I learn to follow him, <clears throat> and to obey everything he commanded. And that's really the, the process, the point in life, in my Christian life, where I learn to tithe and I learn these principles around finances. And so I just want to encourage you to continue to grow in that as you follow Jesus. Well, uh, the, we see a character, as I said in this passage, uh, his name is Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is both a king and a priest, right? He comes out and he blesses Abram, and then Abram uh, uh, worships, in a sense, by giving um, uh, some, some of his resources, ties him. 
And then Melchizedek blesses him with a blessing from God. Melchizedek is referenced in the scriptures a couple of times. He's referenced in the book of Psalms also, and then in Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews, Jesus is referred to as our high priest. And the book of Hebrews, the writer, um, really flushes out this idea that Jesus is a priest for us, that he intercedes between God the Father and us. He goes to the Father on our behalf, and he plays this role of intermediary, right? And so we can go directly to Jesus in our prayers in our, as we pray, and of course we have access to the Father because of Jesus. And so Jesus plays this role of high priest. It's said that Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, referencing back to this character in the book of Genesis. And so what does that mean? I don't want to get into all the stuff with Melchizedek today, but just to give this explanation, um, that to be a priest in the order of Melchizedek, which Jesus is, what that means is that Melchizedek was both a king and a priest. He was a king of, of Salem, and then he was a priest of God Most High. And we'll recognize that Jesus is also has those dual roles. He is a priest for us, and that's why the writer of Hebrews says he's in the order of Melchizedek, because he's the same kind of priest. He's a, he, uh, the same kind of leader. He's a priest, and he's a king. We know Jesus is the king of kings and lord of lords. And so this is the role Melchizedek plays. This is why Jesus is called a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And so this is where we really learn about that character. <clears throat> well, next, the king of Sodom comes out to meet with Abram in the Valley of the Kings. <clears throat> the king of Sodom has an altogether different approach to interacting with Abram. You'll see that uh, the king of Sodom has lost all that he has. <laughs> he, was, uh, he was beaten in battle uh, pretty soundly, and everything was taken from him. Yet he has the hubris to come out to Abram, who has conquered it, rescued it all back, and say, hey, Abram, let's work a deal here. Like, you can keep the stuff that you won, right? The stuff of mine, but give me my people back. Because the truth is, a king without any people, not much of a king, right? And so the king of Sodom's like, i got to hang on to something here. This is my identity. This is who I am. He's trying to maintain some power and control in the region. Abram, very shrewd and very wise in his handling of the king of Sodom, certainly recognizes who he is, right? And, and let's be clear, in this, in this era of history, uh, Abram had the right to keep all the stuff. I mean, he had won it back in battle. It was his but he says something very interesting, doesn't he? He said, listen, I don't want to have anything to do with any of your stuff. <laughs> I'm not going to keep any of it. A couple things. He had obviously tithed off of it already, which is kind of cool. A pagan king's stuff got tithed to God. That's kind of cool. But then he also said, um, you know, give my men. They've eaten some of the food. And then I've got some allies here. You can give them some stuff. But I don't want anything that belongs to you. Because why? I don't want to, uh, you to claim that you're the reason I'm successful. <laughs> You're the reason I made it. Because God has called me to this region. And God has promised me this land. And I'm an emerging leader. Abram's growing in power. And this victory uh, put him on the map, if he wasn't on there already, as a leader in the land of Canaan, as a powerful force. And so he's like, listen, I don't want any, um, any confusion over where my success came from. I think there's a principle here that we can learn from Abram and his wisdom in handling this. When we go into business with others, when we have dealings with others that don't know God and don't love him, there's always a risk that God's not going to get the credit or glory in what happens. Now listen, we have business ventures that don't work. We have things that don't work, but then we have some that do. But uh, the Bible really warns us a little bit and gives us um, some thought to put into as to who we partner with. Who is it that we go into business with? 
Now listen, um, we all, I certainly have worked for companies that aren't necessarily uh, God-fearing, okay? Uh, we live in a world where that's not always possible. We've got to find a job. We've got to provide for our families. Certainly in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, uh, it wasn't the case that everyone worked for a God-fearing person. But when we have the opportunity to invest, when we have the opportunity to be a leader in that, um, maybe a, a new business startup or something that we're going to do in partnership, we're really warned to consider who we, who we partner with. In 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul addresses this issue in chapter 6, verses 14 through 18. He says, don't team up with those who are unbelievers. How can righteousness be a partner with wickedness? How can light live with darkness? What harmony can there be between Christ and the devil? How can a believer be a partner with an unbeliever? He goes on to talk about unions and different things. And really, this is that passage you may have referred to uh, when uh, encouraging Christians in marriage not to be unequally yoked. That's this passage. I'm reading now the, the NLT, so it says it a little different, but it's essentially this idea of partnering up. Now, I don't, this passage isn't necessarily about marriage, though it's used in that context, and I think it's good wisdom to marry somebody. If you're a follower of Jesus, to marry someone who is also a follower of Jesus. It's hard to be united that closely um, and blended that closely without having the same faith without worshiping the same God. And so I would really, that's a caution for us and it's, a, it's an admonition to us to marry someone who has the same belief that we do and the same relationship with God that we do. So that's important. But this passage really, uh, the context of it really seems to be more about business and, and those financial interactions where we're partnering with someone else. And again, just a warning, just a thought to consider that when we partner with somebody who doesn't believe in God or maybe is in opposition to God, it's gonna affect what we can do with that business, uh, who gets the credit for it, how we're able to operate it. And so um, just, to, just something to consider here. I think we can learn from this interaction between Abram and the king of Sodom. He recognized there was a distinction there. He recognized that God had called him out, Abram, and he said, I'm not going to have anything to do with your stuff. <clears throat> Be careful who you partner with. It will impact who gets credit, who gets the glory in the end. Abram continues to move forward with what God has told him. He takes care of his growing tribe, but there's still a problem. He has no son. God has promised him a son, and in order for him to, the promises of God to come true, he has to have a son. And yet that hasn't happened, and so this challenges Abram's faith in God. But in answer to this test, Abram decides again to believe God. Let's read Genesis 15, starting in verse 1. Sometime later, the Lord spoke to Abram in a vision and said to him, Do not be afraid, Abram, for I will protect you, and your reward will be great. But Abram replied, O sovereign Lord, what good are all your blessings when I don't even have a son? Since you have given me no children, Eleazar of Damascus, a servant in my household, will inherit all my wealth. You have given me no descendants of my own, so one of my servants will be my heir. Then the Lord said to him, No, your servant will not be your heir. For you will have a son of your, uh, of your own who will be your heir. Then the Lord took Abram outside and said to him, Look up in the sky, count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. And Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. Then the Lord told him, I am the Lord who brought you up out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land as, a possession, as your possession. But Abram replied, O sovereign Lord, How can I be sure that they will actually possess it? God makes a a promise again to Abram. He makes a promise as to what he's going to do. 
He says, listen, no, uh, you don't have a son and that's a problem in order for me to fulfill my promises, but that's not a problem. Don't doubt, I am going to provide you a son. No, your servant, uh, some other person in your household is not gonna be your heir. I'm gonna give you a son. And it's, uh, it's very important. It's a very important statement that Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Believing God is how we come to God. It's how we uh, access God and begin a relationship with him. The Bible says without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so we must have faith. Faith is this component that allows us to begin a relationship with God and to have uh, put our trust in him. And so uh, even though um, we are given many promises, we have uh, oftentimes a tendency to doubt. Have you ever wondered if God could actually keep the promises that he makes in Scripture? Have you ever wondered if they really would come true? Oftentimes we look for a sign, we look for something to prove to us that God will keep his promises. In 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul, uh, talking about his efforts to share the gospel around the world, he said, it's foolishness to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven, and it's foolishness to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say it's all nonsense. Right? And so he goes, it's a struggle. People want to see something. They want to know something uh, in order to believe. And sometimes we ourselves fall into that trap. Let me meet you on the mountain, Lord, just once. You wouldn't have to burn a whole bush, just a few smoking branches, and I would surely be your Moses. Let me meet you on the water, Lord, just once. It wouldn't have to be on Lake McConaughey, just in a puddle after a thunderstorm, and I would surely be your Peter. Let me meet you on the road, Lord, just once. You wouldn't have to blind me on I-25 between Fort Collins and Denver. It could just be a few bright lights on my way to Cheyenne, and I would surely be your Paul. Let me meet you, Lord, just once, anywhere, anytime. Just meeting you in the Word is so hard sometimes. Must I always be your Thomas? Some of the promises of God to us as believers, promises salvation for all who believe in Jesus in Romans 1. All things will work for your good, Romans 8, 28. Comfort in your trials, 2 Corinthians 1. New life in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5. Every spiritual blessing, Ephesians 1 teaches us, will be ours. To finish the good work that he started in you is a promise made to us in Philippians chapter 1. Peace when we pray, Philippians chapter 4. And Philippians 4.19 promises that God will meet all of our needs. These are the promises to us in Scripture. Again, if you're in chair 2 and you're growing in your faith, you've got to learn to trust the promises of God. In order to trust them, you've got to know what they are. And so again, immersing yourself in Scripture and beginning to read and study and get in Bible studies with other people can encourage you to learn what it is that God has promised us. This is what it means to grow in our faith. You may be in a test right now. Um, oftentimes when I make the decision to trust Christ, that's a time of testing that can be the most intense. But you might be in a time of testing. Will you believe the promises of God or will you trust in your own wisdom? Will you trust in what you can see? Or will you really believe God? I just want to encourage you once again that God is true to his word. He will keep his promises. And when we pass the test of trusting in him, that's how we grow in our faith. God is willing to prove his commitment to us in a way that we can understand. 
For Abram, in his time, there was a particular way in which God was going to prove to him that he was going to keep his covenant, um, or he was going to keep his promise to him, and that was that God makes a covenant with Abram. Genesis 15, we continue reading in verse 9. The Lord told him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So Abram presented all these to him and killed them. He then cut each animal down the middle and laid the halves side by side. He did not, however, cut the birds in half. Some vultures swooped down to try to eat the carcasses, but Abram chased them away. As the sun was going down, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a terrifying darkness came down over him. Then the Lord said to Abram, You can be sure that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land, while they will be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. But I will punish the nation that enslaves them. And in the end, you will come away with great wealth. As for you, you will die in peace and be buried at a ripe old age. Verse 16, after four generations, your descendants will return here to this land. For the sins of the Amorites do not yet warrant their destruction. After the sun went down and darkness fell, Abram saw a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between the halves of the carcasses. So the Lord made a covenant with Abram that day and said, I have gotten this land to, I have given this land to your descendants all the way from the border of Egypt to the great Euphrates River, the land now occupied by a bunch of names that are hard to pronounce. Hey, um, so <laughs> you try reading them out loud. Okay, here's the deal. So, so um, there's this interaction that God has with Abram and he, he, um, affirms to him his, his commitment to keep his promise. What's amazing here, I just encourage you with this, God uses a process that Abram's familiar with. The way of making contracts, covenants in this time was to do what God does with Abram. Seems strange to us. I mean, we're familiar in the Old West, it was a handshake, that was your word. Now we sign contracts, right? That's, that's how we commit to something or promise to keep something. In this time, in, the, in this history of the world, this was how they did it. They would uh, kill an animal, so animal sacrifice was usually involved. They would cut it in half. They would lay the halves uh, apart from each other, so that, and then they would walk between them. And walking between them was making a covenant. I know you think it's strange. I, it sounds kind of strange, but it's how they did it. What's cool about this, get this, that God did this with Abram. He said, listen, I'm going to keep my promise to you. I'm making a covenant to you. And he did it in a way that Abram could relate to. This is how God does it with us as well. God comes to us. He connects with us and he makes promises to us and these promises are confirmed in ways we can understand. Um, He sent Jesus to the earth. This is the gospel. God became a man, walked among among us. And Jesus, before he went to the cross, he uh, ate with his disciples and he took the bread and the cup, right? What what we call communion. But he said, this this, uh, cup represents a new covenant in my blood. And so he said, listen, God, we're making a new agreement with with the human race and that forgiveness of sins is now possible through the sacrifice that I'm going to make. And so Jesus on the cross sheds his blood and his perfect blood is the atonement for the sins of the whole world. And so in and through that sacrifice, by uh, by us as human beings placing our faith in what he's done, putting our trust in him, is how we're saved. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 says we're, fa- we're saved by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's not of any works that we do. And so we, we come into a relationship with God by faith and faith alone. And then 
we, uh, our actions and our life begins to reflect that commitment. We turn from our sins or repent. We're baptized as we saw today. We begin to move towards a holy life of obedience. And that's what we do as we trust Christ. My question today is, um, you might be here, and I'm just wondering if somebody's here, and you're in this chair one that we call it, you're a seeker, you're looking into the claims of Jesus, but I wonder if today might be the day where you need to step into chair two. You need to become a follower. You need to put your trust in Jesus and what he's done. It's a big step. It takes a, a lot of faith and trust to do it, but it's so important. It's what moves us from death to life. And so if you guys would bow your heads for just a moment, if somebody's here and that's you, you're in that spot and you know God's been uh, pressing on your heart, you, you can sense that and you know you need to make a decision, maybe today is that day, I wanna call you to that. And if you would just, um, <clears throat> if that's you, would you just look up at me and make eye contact uh, that that's you, that you're in that spot, you wanna take that step? Anybody here today? I want to ask you to come and talk to me afterwards. I want, to, I want to talk with you a little bit about that decision. But let me pray for us. God, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for calling us to walk with you, <clears throat> to take a step to trust in you. You really have offered life to us. You put salvation in front of us. It's a free gift. There's nothing we can do. But you ask us to put, uh, with, the, with the force of our will, to trust in you. Put our faith in you and you alone. Father, thank you for um, those here today that have made that decision or ready to make that decision. I pray for them. And God, for the rest of us as we follow you, I pray you continue to help us to step into obedience, to grow in our faith as Abram shows us to trust you more. Teach us, Father, so that we can walk with a powerful, powerful faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.